please rate, review, and subscribe to Dare to Explore wherever you listen to podcasts. Dare to Explore is powered by the U.S. Space and Rocket Center Education Foundation, which supports the educational programs of the U.S. Space and Rocket Center, home of Space Camp, working to inspire the next generation of explorers. Learn more about the Foundation's mission at rocketcenterfoundation.org. It's a whole reverse adaptation process. Okay, just as they got used to living and floating right. and working right. in microgravity and, and kind of Velcroing things to walls, <laughs> that adaptation starts with learning how to stand up again. Yeah, even standing up is a taxing activity because they've been in microgravity for so long. And so in those first hours and even day, it can be really difficult to stand up on your own accord, to walk in a straight line, your hand-eye coordination is affected. Hmm. Things like um, remembering to set down your toothbrush and not letting it float away <laughs> are, are examples of some fun little um, anecdotes that the astronauts have shared are, are easy to forget. Like your toothbrush isn't going to keep floating here and you have to actually physically put it down and not let it drop on the ground. Dr. Andrea Hansen is a bioastronautics and microgravity science aerospace engineer. She's working at NASA Johnson Space Center on crew health and performance for the human landing system. She is a Space Camp alumni, a Space Camp Hall of Fame member, and serves on the Space Camp Alumni Advancement Board. I'm Ryan Faricelli. Join me as I learn what makes this extraordinary individual dare to explore. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for. I'm flying up to the stars. I'm gonna dare to explore this time. I'll let you know what I find. It's all about exposure, right? And so growing up in small town, Minnesota, it's pretty remote, pretty rural. Um, it's a large farming community. And we have, of course, the gorgeous four seasons up there that offer all kinds of outdoor interests. Um, but it's it's not a hub for space and engineering, that's for sure. And so it took a while to find a good fit for my worldly interests. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I was interested in math. I was interested in chemistry. Um, I was interested in how the world around me worked, but I wasn't exactly sure what that meant, um, especially as a high schooler and really not until I started college. I didn't have a chance to attend space camp. Um, it was Again, it wasn't something that we talked about. I wasn't watching the Nickelodeon shows where they're giving that away as prizes or, <laughs> or you know, seeing the advertisements in various magazines. But when I did get, I went, uh, did my undergraduate at the University of North Dakota and had a really great friend who had been to space camp and had been a counselor there the summer before. And they were recruiting for space camp counselors. And I just thought that sounded like the neatest thing. I had already spent time as a counselor at a Bible camp up in Northern Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> I just loved my summer camp experiences growing up. And so being a camp counselor was just a really great natural fit for me. So I looked into it uh, and I went, I applied and interviewed and they offered me the job. Was this uh, before you graduated high school or was this just after? 
And so um, actually to be a counselor at, at that time, and I think it still stands, you need to have completed at least two years of college. Okay. So it's a really pretty stringent um, criteria that their crew trainers, I guess not counselors, but crew trainers are brought in. <laughs> Um, and they also, they put you through, uh, two to three weeks of training and then you have to pass tests before they actually hire you for the summer. So they want to make sure that you really capture the content and that you're going to be able to relate that to the trainees to offer that just really out of this world experience that only space camp can offer. I mean, the, the days are truly nonstop. And so I, I worked with the advanced Academy programs. And so every Sunday afternoon, a team of 18, um, 15 to 18 year olds would show up and it was day and night. Uh, we, we would uh, co-lead a team. So there were always two crew trainers, one took the, the morning shift and one took the night shift. Um, <laughs> but we not only needed to make sure they got to their their mission briefings, but oftentimes we're giving those or giving the lectures on the history of rocketry or orbital mechanics or talking about what it means to work in mission control or leading them through their team exercises. So yeah, so it is a very hands-on, not just a tour guide, but also a, a teacher. How did going to space camp to work as a crew trainer kind of affect your career trajectory? Wow, it, it set me off on the trajectory that I'm still enjoying today. Uh, so at the University of North Dakota, I was studying chemical engineering, and it was uh, not until about my sophomore year that I was introduced to our space studies program. Um, I had picked chemical engineering for a variety of reasons, largely because I had visited the 3M factory in St. Paul, Minnesota, and got to see how post-its were made. <laughs> <laughs> so if that's an influential <laughs> tidbit on how one starts a career. And I wasn't really quite sure what I was going to do with my chemical engineering degree when I was getting started. But it, the more I learned about space studies, the more I became interested in space. And so then when I went to space camp to be a crew trainer, it it really turned my career trajectory upside down. And in the, the positive direction that I got I am going in today um it was you know everything about it was incredible and I could see applications from my engineering background you know that are that needed to be used in the space industry um so it wasn't only the the rocket propulsion or the the history of space lectures but it was the adaptations that the human body goes through that we were trained in and then helped our teach to our trainees that really caught my interest. And I wanted to know more about how we lose bone and muscle mass in space and then how we fix it and how we prevent it. And so that's really what coupled my engineering interests with human physiology and spaceflight physiology. There's so, still so much that we don't understand about what happens to the body after long-term spaceflight exposure. Um, there's a lot we do understand and don't know how to prevent. So yeah, at that time, we, they were still using some pretty rudimentary exercise devices on the space shuttle. Um, we knew that we had longer duration, like six months to a year missions coming up on space station that were gonna dictate the need for higher fidelity hardware. So it was a, it was a very exciting time to jump into that field. And um, so, yeah, so I, instead of going into the chemical engineering field, where I was gonna make lucrative amounts of money, <laughs> I, I, I turned to graduate school <laughs> um, and jumped into an aerospace engineering program with a very specific emphasis in bioastronautics and microgravity sciences. And that was at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And then you did some postdoc work at the University of Washington. Yeah, so after studying, 
um, really focusing my research focused on development of both exercise and pharmaceutical countermeasures to uh, delay or prevent the bone and muscle losses, I had the opportunity to step up from a benchtop model into a more applied model in the orthopedics and sports medicine department. So there, I was working with my, my mentor, uh, Dr. Peter Kavanaugh, who is a, a world-renowned biomechanist, and he had NASA grants. And one was very specifically to develop a small footprint, low power, um, total body gym that could fly in a spacecraft. And so when I came into the department, I started working on that. And when, after we got started, uh, we received funding for a new grant to create an activity monitor. Now this might sound very familiar because we live in the world of activity monitoring and Fitbits. <laughs> well, this was an Fitbit to track bone health on the surface of Mars and the moon. So we started developing wireless technologies that would do exactly that by tracking activity and creating algorithms that would turn that into meaningful information. So that was like in 2009, 2010. So Fitbits were not a huge thing at that time. No, yeah, that was actually pretty cutting edge. And um, yeah, we we still, we, we were working with the, the Office of um, Commercialization at the University of Washington campus, trying to convince them that we had the latest, greatest, next best technology, not only for astronauts, but for orthopedics patients. And they disagreed. <laughs> and two years later, the Fitbit office is open. We're like, ah. <laughs> so I'd been at the University of Washington nearly two years. And there was a job that opened up in the Exercise Physiology and Countermeasures Laboratory down at Johnson Space Center. And the job description was written in a manner I'm like, do they know what I do? Like, did they write this job requirement for me? <laughs> it was <laughs> to serve as the International Space Station Exercise Countermeasures Hardware Specialist. Like the only person in the world that would have this job. <laughs> and it was to make sure that to work daily with the astronauts that were exercising on the International Space Station, on the exercise bike, the treadmill, and the advanced resistance exercise device strength training machine, make sure that we were getting data down into the laboratory and writing reports in a meaningful way such that we could assess their progress and making sure that they were getting the right types of exercise and the right amounts and that the hardware was working well. And when something went wrong, like a heart rate monitor stops working or the treadmill stopped working, then we had to work with the International Space Station program and the engineers to help them understand why it was important that they fixed it right away <laughs> and get the bright parts up there as quickly as possible. So it was it was exactly what I had been doing on the research side, but more on the applied and operational side of the house. Also, at about the same time you started there, you joined the Space Camp Alumni Advancement Board. Well, I'll, I'll have to go a little further back from there because okay. it was in 2010. I received the most amazing phone call from the U.S. Space and Rocket Center informing me that I had been selected as an inductee to the Space Camp Hall of Fame, <laughs> given the, the two years in a winter camp session that I had spent there as a counselor. And it, it was like, wow, no way. <laughs> Who thought to nominate me? Um, so it, it, what it did was give me an opportunity to return home to space camp that summer to go to the ceremony and re-engage with that amazing community of, of teachers and educators and leaders and, and revisit, you know, just the center itself. And ever since then, ever since 2010, I have been involved with the center on a regular basis. And so that started, my role on the board actually started as the 
a representative of the Hall of Fame to the Alumni Advancement Board and grew from there. So I had an opportunity to step in as co-chair, eventually chair and chair emeritus. So I, I spent um, just short of probably five or six years on the Alumni Advancement Board. What, so what does the Alumni Advancement Board do? This is such a... Oh, it's just such a neat group. So we recognized three years ago that we there were one million Space Camp alumni Holy out there. Cow. And as the yeah, one million alumni out there. And remember that Space Camp opened in the eighties. So we also put the pieces together and recognized a whole lot of us were now professionals and right. adults and in the bigger the bigger work world, and that we still had this very unique yet powerful passion for our time at camp, the experiences that it brought us, the people it connected us with, and how it actually influenced our careers and our lives. And so recognizing that was a really powerful um, community to harness. Well, I can't I can't take credit for it, but the leaders at the time uh, formulated the, uh, the Alumni Advancement Board, and it was a means to reconnect community to re-engage with the center, to bring those skills and resources that we'd collected as adults to bring back to the center and to help make sure that we were connecting with other alumni with, with like interests and offering ways to engage with this amazing program and these amazing people. It was focused on maintaining some of those really unique museum pieces that are on site, whether it were, were the fighter jets down at Aviation Challenge or the that beautiful Saturn V rocket that you see as you come into the Huntsville area on the horizon or helping to maintain the Pathfinder. So a lot of it was very focused on on items that needed maintenance at the center. And then we were able to grow from there and start even a scholarship fund and make sure that those kids who didn't have easy access to programs like Space Camp were going to have an opportunity to get there. The Intuitive Planetarium is an immersive digital dome theater experience that offers educational astronomy shows, live entertainment, and exciting theater experiences. The only one of its kind in the Southeast, the Intuitive Planetarium at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center offers an 8K digital planetarium and digital dome experience. Additional time tickets are required for Intuitive Planetarium experiences. Visit rocketcenter.com for tickets today. focused on the human spaceflight uh, programs. And after I left the exercise countermeasures laboratory, I started engaging in more medical exploration type work. And that's where we were, we were starting to develop really formal systems engineering practices to ensure that we were putting all of that research that we had done to a really good use in a smart way and integrated into future vehicles, designs and programs. And from there, Today, I work with the human landing system. I'm getting to support the Artemis mission and helping to develop the vehicles that are going to land on the moon in just short of three years. So Art Artemis itself is actually an architecture, so mission architecture that includes a lot of different vehicles. Okay. And that includes everything from the space launch system that NASA is developing, the Orion capsule, the, the gateway, a space station that will ultimately orbit the moon, 
the human landing system itself, along with the future lunar terrain vehicles, the rovers, whether those are pressurized, unpressurized, and all those surface uh, services and activities that are going to happen. <clears throat> so collectively, that is the Artemis program. And so I'm working very specifically with the human landing systems. So the spaceship that will carry the astronauts from the gateway platform down to the surface of the moon. The biggest effect, obviously, that, that takes place when you go into space is, is going to be bone and muscle loss. And I think most people just assume that because there's no gravity, so there's no resistance to your movements and things like that. But can you talk a little bit about what happens when somebody goes into space and, and how quickly or, or slowly that occurs? Yeah, the body goes through so many different changes and they start happening immediately. Right when you start entering microgravity, what you start to notice immediately is a, a headward fluid shift because gravity is no longer pulling everything down towards your feet. And so what that results in is kind of like a stuffy nose feeling, maybe a slight loss of taste um, and a little more pressure in the head. You know, you might experience a headache. For first time flyers and sometimes even repeat flyers, there's even a little space motion sickness involved when you do that transition between a 1G environment into 0G. So that usually just, that clears up pretty quick. We have some good countermeasures to help with that for that adaptation process. So then a week or two into a mission, astronauts will really start to notice uh, the, the muscle loss that they are experiencing if they aren't exercising. <laughs> and so that can manifest, manifest itself in a lot of different ways. Okay, one of the big tasks that astronauts perform when they're in space is conducting extravehicular activities or EVAs. And that dictates a lot of a muscle strength, particularly in the hands, because remember they're in a pressurized suit. They have to get in and out of, they have to meet, remain really flexible. And they, they need a good VO2 max. They need good cardiovascular capacity to get through that type of activity. So even during the shuttle missions, which were typically one to two weeks, astronauts needed to exercise to ensure they could maintain those capabilities. And for those that were piloting the spacecraft, that was um, as, just as important to make sure that they kept a good physical health to get through those really intense um, entry and landing protocols. They aren't exercising, they're gonna start noticing decreases in their physical capabilities. Um, but they won't really feel is that when that bone loss starts to happen. That's something that you don't really see. Um, just, you know, looking at you and me, that requires bone scans and we don't have bone scanning technology in space. Right. And so what we have to do is take pre-flight and post-flight measures to understand what that difference is and then try to do better the next time to prevent it from happening. <laughs> so there's a lot of technology development that, is, is still up for grabs to ensure that we can miniaturize the medical hardware we need to uh, truly monitor astronaut health. Um, I'll just really quickly, some of the other adaptations that the body goes through is um, because of the way that the fluid goes upwards, we will lose fluid um, and that's largely in blood volume. Um, the heart starts uh, pumping in a different way and Ultimately, the, the brain can even start changing and neurons will start shifting gears based on the type of activity, the level of nutrients it's receiving and the cognitive workload that they're undergoing. And that uh, all of that is impacted by radiation exposure, is impacted by nutrition and uh, the, the stress that every day brings. What about the folks on the ISS where they're up there, you know, months? Are there any sort of longer term effects that, that are, are notable? 
Yeah, there really are. And some of the, the research that the Human Research Program is conducting right now includes things like understanding the, um, the changes that the eyes go through when they're in microgravity for a long time. So again, with the changes in blood flow and um, the environment around them, that's the mix of gases, you know, what increased CO2 levels, there are changes that that, that eyesight adapt to. So um, that's a big issue that researchers are studying right now. Um, there's a lot of team interaction that, that's at play and astronauts really train really hard to make sure they're good team players. And they're largely selected because they already are <laughs> in a lot of cases. Right, um, right. But team interaction changes. And, you know, being away from the earth, from your family, from your friends, and not having any access to the the earth conference that we're so familiar with can take an emotional toll and psychological toll as well. And so there are a lot of resources available to ensure that there's some level of, of comfort, some outlet to to make sure that they're working through any extra stresses that are impacting their their work day because they do have a pretty incredible workload um, maintaining the vehicle, conducting research, and you know just making sure that they're making full use of every day. They know that they, this is a huge opportunity to be able to live and work aboard the International Space Station. So they work really hard to make sure they get the most out of every day. And part of that is has been um, scheduling and adapting of scheduling. So instead of just telling each crew member, you must do these 20 different tasks today, um, what Mission Control has been doing and the crew trainers have been doing is finding better ways to say, hey, these 20 things are important. Here's another list of 10. If you can get these done in the next couple of days, you know, try to arrange your schedule so that in a manner in which you can do that, that works best for you. So just like we get a, a an unexpected email asking for an immediate review of a document. You know, astronauts get unexpected task calls all the time. So they have to put aside the work that's in front of them and they can't always be on a, a stopwatch timer trying to get through each task yeah. right when it was scheduled. So schedule flexibility has really, I think, um, as I understand, increased uh, the day-to-day pleasantries <laughs> on board space station. Research takes time. And so there are really time sensitive uh, experiments that are going on on space station. So not all of that is flexible, but certainly the order in which they can do it in, um, there is has become a little more flexibility. If I bring a 25 pound dumbbell to to zero gravity, it, it doesn't weigh 25 pounds anymore. So how do I how do I exercise? That's a really good question. And the answer is we've had to develop some really sophisticated technology to <laughs> enable exercise in space. Um, it's, it's really quite impressive. So again, we have the, the exercise bike. And if you've ever done a clip-in um, cycle class or, or have a bike with clip pedals, it's not all that different, except the bike itself doesn't have a seat. It doesn't have handlebars. <laughs> and you kind of have these side supports where you help to stay on top of the ergometer itself. Um, but then go ahead and, and cycle very similarly to what you would on the ground. When it comes to the treadmill, the treadmill actually does look like a, a regular treadmill, but the big difference is you need to wear a harness and be bungee down to the surface <laughs> of the treadmill so you don't float away while you're running. <laughs> and so it's not, it's actually pretty uncomfortable to do a one-to-one load. So if you were to pull yourself down to your full body weight that you would be experiencing on Earth, that puts a uh, pr- 
some pinch points at your shoulders and where the and rub points where the harness sits on your body and your shoulders and your hips. And so it's not easy to get that, to replicate that full 1G load, but um, the astronauts are encouraged to, you know, load as high as they can and over time and as they acclimate to that, that exercise process to load up as much as they're able to. And that's about as best as we can do. But when it comes to the advanced resistive exercise device, that's really where NASA engineering hit the mark because this piece of equipment is built off of vacuum cylinders where you can adjust loads through a, a lever system and it can deliver um, up to 300 pound loads. It's pretty incredible. And you're able to do a full complement of exercises on that from your traditional squats and deadlifts to bench presses to bicep curls all through the system of pulleys and levers. How big is that device? It's, I mean, it sounds that's like it'd be big, large. That's a really big device. Um, it takes up, well, I don't have a, a volumetric measure, but um, it, it takes up a couple of, of ISS rack spaces if anyone out there is familiar with what that might mean. And so certainly hardware that we are working to shrink down for our smaller future vehicles. And so over the last 20 years, I'd even say, we've been working towards miniaturizing exercise hardware. And we now work with our international partners, um, both the European Space Agency and the Japanese and even our Russian partners to develop smaller footprint exercise hardware. And we've been able to test that in some of our ground analogs and even plan on finding a small exercise device in the Orion capsule. If I'm exercising, I'm going to break a sweat. Where does that, doesn't that fluid end up in the air? Or, or how does, how does zero gravity affect, you know, me working my butt off, I guess is my question. That's a real insightful question. And you just um, opened a whole can of worms. Uh (laughs) Well, it's just as important to focus on the human and human health. We also need to protect the vehicle and making sure that we're containing things like sweat and not imparting too much vibrational load on the space vehicle itself are really important aspects. So we are constantly working with engineering and structures and those that protect the vehicle to ensure that while we're we're not inducing negative side effects when we're really trying to just benefit the human body. And so when it comes to sweat, you know, um, sometimes it'll go flying off. The astronauts generally keep a towel close by so that they can do wipe downs <laughs> and really minimize that. But um, space vehicles have dehumidifiers and fans worrying to help kind of mitigate that, <laughs> the sweat fly off. But it does certainly play um, have an impact on the environmental systems. So while space station is pretty big and, you know, just uh, 30 minutes or an hour or even of running or exercise, probably isn't going to overload or tax the environmental control and life support systems. In a small vehicle like Orion, that's a, that is a real concern. So then you have to space out the exercise periods appropriately so that the, the ECLIS system can keep up with that kind of metabolic load. It was really interesting. You, you mentioned the vibrations. So just running on that treadmill can, can affect the, the ship. Oh, absolutely. And so that's actually um, a pretty unique piece of hardware that NASA engineers have come up with. It's called vibration isolation systems. And each piece of exercise equipment has one. Um, So if you can imagine, you know, one of the primary reasons we're in space and living and working up there in the International Space Station and exploring is to conduct science. And so that we can understand how 
biology works in microgravity, how physical sciences, you know, change when you take gravity away. Well, if we start imparting artificial loads, we're really affecting that world sure. science that's going on. So we have to be really careful to not, you know, shake shake the space vehicles. We're also protecting solar panels, the 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 structure itself, and making sure that you know the whole the whole vehicle stays stable and steady while we're able to get a good physical workout in. So vibration isolation systems have been the answer. When they come home, what kind of challenges do astronauts face because of the types of of differences that occur when they're in zero g? You know, really learning learning how to ambulate in a 1G environment again, regaining that lost strength and coordination is is all part of it. And so while we do a really good job of protecting the physiology of astronauts on space station, there's it still takes a toll. So it's it's really um, an individual readaptation process, but they go through a, a physical rehab session over the, a couple of weeks, if not even months, to ensure that they've regained baseline strength and then we uh, do really closely monitor all of their their biometrics um, and bone health and and eyesight to ensure that they're coming back to Earth normal. And does does everything that generally eventually come back to Earth normal? We're still working on that answer. And so some of those you know day to day physiological adaptations that we need just to carry out our daily lives those return pretty functionally. But the the long term health we're we're still doing research on. Something that's been interesting to me when astronauts come back is reporting, you know, while they're in their getting ready for their sleep period or just starting to fall asleep, how they can sometimes see flashes of light streaking across their eyes. And what uh, engineers have deduced that down to are little bits of radiation hitting the the eyeball and going and going through their eyesight, creating those light flashes. So I think that's kind of interesting to be so vulnerable to, you know, um, just the galaxy that one would experience those tracks of lights um, is is pretty quirky to me. And how that then, you know, changes your perception of the the world around you, the environment and the vehicle around you. Um, And then, you know, for those with hair, um, just the the, the hair float is pretty cool, too. And being able to have fun, (laughs) fun with your crewmates and uh, and the the physiologic like uh, so they'll get puffy face and um, hair will stand on end. So just some of those fun things that change the the normal way we think and look every day. You know, in our next missions where we're going back to the surface of the moon, that's going to be partial gravity. So that's another game changer. That's one sixth the gravity that we're used to moving and working around in here on Earth. So the astronauts will go from zero G down to the surface in one sixth gravity. So that's certainly going to change the way that they they move around, that they the comfort levels they feel while sleeping um, and how how they, you know, operate the vehicle. And I think that's one of the things I'm most excited about in working with our commercial partners and developing the new generation of Lunar Lander are the, the different design changes that are going to open up some opportunities to bring some some great new science, um, great new hardware, and give that, that activity of going to the moon a totally new look. Um, while there's certainly a lot to learn about the moon and the resources available up there and even more about Earth from that distance away, this is absolutely a stepping stone to 
to the path to Mars. And so we're going to be demonstrating new technologies. We're going to be, again, understanding the impacts on humans and performance um, when you're now three days away from the Earth, as opposed to, you know, a, a couple hour trip up to the space station when we go beyond low Earth orbit, that it's a game changer. So it's going to be incredibly exciting to see how the, the technology development is going to support that and then help us to better understand what those existing risks are when we think about going off on a Martian mission. There's just so much to be excited about right now. Um, it's, it still surprises me when I'm out in the community or talking with folks and they start asking me about NASA and how they comment on, wow, it's really a shame that NASA isn't doing much anymore since the, <laughs> since the space shuttle went away. And I'm just like, whoa, 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 Let, let's have a talk. Like, you have two hours because I need right. to share with you what's been going on with the space industry. So not only has the International Space Station's lifetime just been extended, which is super exciting, we I, I think there's more going on at NASA now than ever before in the history of NASA. Um, the, the whole Artemis mission architecture is just one of the, the biggest projects that I think NASA's ever undertaken. And it's, it's, it's such a neat combination of bringing in-house NASA technology, but also, again, working with our industry partners. And we haven't worked with them in this way to accomplish such big goals ever before. So when we can bring those ideas from uh, companies like SpaceX, Dynetics, and Blue Origin, and put their best and brightest on the same jobs, as NASA, we can just do so much more. We can continue to support things like the James Webb Telescope and all of our Earth Science program. We can, you know, out outsource some of that technology development so that we can focus on things like this, the space launch system and developing the Orion capsule that's actually going to carry our astronauts into lunar orbit and work with continue to work with our international partners and making sure that they have a voice and are able to share the hardware that they develop best and be part of this really international, uh, just super ambitious project. Train like an astronaut and get lost in space at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. Shuttle simulator programs are available to try your hand at piloting the shuttle and is based on both the past and the future of space exploration. Your team of up to four participants must work together to land the shuttle and bring the crew safely home. Museum admission is required. Find out available times, prices, and more at rocketcenter.com and get ready to blast off. already packed. I'm ready. (laughs) Absolutely. I think it would be just uh, such a tremendous opportunity to go experience what I've now spent 20 years career (laughs) um, researching and, and, and working in. It would be a tremendous honor to, to be able to take that trip and, and go into space and conduct research um, on ISS or even be step out onto the surface of the moon and and see how we did, you know, in our vehicle design and in the systems designs that we're working so hard on today. You got to follow your passion. You got to, you got to, 
love what you do every day. So we, we work for years and years and years. And so if you're not loving what you do every day, then, um, you know, having a, a focus goal, like being an astronaut is, isn't going to be worth it at the end. So as long as you love what you're doing, um, follow your passions and, and don't pigeonhole what your thought of being an aerospace engineer and or even an astronaut looks like. So I started as a chemical engineer thinking that I would maybe make post-it notes one day <laughs> and found an incredible application of that chemical engineering background in thermal systems, um, environmental control and life support systems. And that opened up opportunities to explore what it means to, you know, go into the aerospace engineering field and and how that applies to the different jobs. So so be open-minded, I would say, and know that if you're doing what you love, if you're following your passions, and part of that is to be in the space industry, there's a fit for you, whether it's as an engineer, a teacher, an artist, a cook, uh, a mechanic, or a, even a, a translation specialist. Um, language translation. So there's um, the space industry touches every aspect of professional interest. So there, there's a there's a spot for you somewhere if you're interested. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for. I'm flying up to the stars. I'm gonna dare to explore this time. I'll let you know